When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and I'm just here to ask the questions, but the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jeff Vogan, founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how's your weekend going so far? Well, it's always good when it starts off here with you and the radio with all the listeners and just talking about the week behind us and possibly the weeks ahead of us. That's right. The weeks ahead of us are going to be full with holiday plans and Jeff Thanksgiving is just next week. So after that, of course, the license plates will really begin to change colors as people begin to visit us here in the land of the sun. And we're glad that everybody could join us each week here in 790 KNST for Premier Retirement. And we've got a lot of great things to talk about today. Let's kick it off with what the CPI says about inflation in the month of October, Jeff. They're reporting 3.2%. People are just giddy with happiness about this. I mean, the market is rallying as a result of this. But what we see on the surface, is that all there is? Or should we dig deeper into this figure? Well, you know, while uh, we've been staying out of the market most of the last year and a half, you know, since May of last year, making good solid returns and not riding this roller coaster, you know, we're still in a downtrend if you consider the highs in August still have not been breached. We've got everybody talking about, oh, November's a November to remember. It's up 7%. NASDAQ's up 7% beginning of this week, but it's down 11 since August. So we're still down. I mean, we're still kind of rolling over that high point when we had all that AI hype. Now, if you look at where all the earnings are coming from, if you look at the earnings of just the big seven the magnificent seven what they call it the mag mant or something now it's what it used to be called the fangs you know the facebook's all that so anyway it's all changed but so we've got these new stocks that are driving the market if you look at the earnings for those companies they seem like they're doing all okay except for apple not doing okay but the stock price seems to be holding up because people have hope for apple because it's a good company good solid blue chip play in the tech market but you know we've got all these huge companies that are kind of stealing all the business because it's kind of the only place they, they really have monopolies and so if you look at the other 493 stocks in the S&P, on average, their earnings are down about 1%. And the gains on those seven stocks are really driving the index of the S&P and the NASDAQ as well. Now, the Dow's 30 stocks, it just kind of depends on what's hot that day. If you have one or two in there that it can actually drive the index. So the Dow's really a hard index to follow to, to get a real feel for the true economy. But, you know, we've still got a lot of things that are really bothersome fundamentally to me. And, you know, we can talk about those. The yield curve is a big one. I've talked about that for, you know, since it inverted a year ago. There's always been a recession that's followed. Now, there's seven or eight other graphs we could look at that show that it's always followed up by a, um, a recession. We also know that a bear market typically has a initial sell-off, a bear market rally, which is usually fueled by hype and hope. 
during this hype and hope session, however, with the AI and with even, you know, the inflation's not growing quite as fast as it was, it's still up, you know, we're pushing what, 30% since Biden took office. So, okay, it's growing 3%, but it's growing 3% on 130% of what we used to, uh, you know, have to spend. And we've got to spend 30% more to buy all our stuff. And we're going to buy the same stuff we bought just a few years ago. So I think in order to fix the problem, we ought to probably see some negative, some deflation so we can get back to some of the old prices. You know, we saw some deflation in gas. I think that was a real big part just in this last month or so. You know, this is October numbers that we're talking about. We saw deflation in gas, which also kind of trickles through for food. Those are two big expenses in core inflation rate, which would probably drop the year over year rate. But remember a year ago, we were at eights and nines last summer. So eights and nines plus threes were still in the last two years up, you know, 10 plus still averaging over five, which is way too high. Yes, it is going the right direction. Yes, I am optimistic. Yes, I am happy that the Fed may not have to overshoot the uh, tightening as much as it may have thought. But, you know, make most, no mistake, Monday, uh, the Fed, I think it was Powell spoke, uh, I believe it was last, just this last Monday, and said, hey, make no mistake, we'll keep raising interest rates. We're not there yet. You know, three or 4% is still higher than we need to be to have a healthy economy. And, you know, companies are still not able to borrow money cheaply. Banks are scared to lend it. Defaults are high. You know, people are overspending on credit cards. So there's still those things that, you know, make me a little worried. The other thing is price earnings ratio is huge just because companies are beating their estimates. Over 80% of their companies beat downwardly revised estimates. So, okay, so they're still down. You know, Apple came in with its fourth consecutive quarter with reduced earnings and revenue growth. So we don't have that same robust growth, even in the tech sector that we used to have or that we need to have. But what usually happens after that initial sell off and then this bear market rally, which we've had, you know, and it's also been fueled not just by hype, but it's also been fueled by excess savings. Well, this excess savings are otherwise called helicopter money, according to every graph I see, is running out or already ran out. And the only people that have some money is, you know, money sitting on the sidelines for rich people, but the poor people have either invested it, bought CDs with it because it was sitting in cash doing nothing. So they've, you know, kind of bid up the short term and the, you know, the safe bond market a little bit, jumped into the market either trying to buy lower because they bought into the hype. And now we've got close to 60% of private households, which is considered the dumb money, not that they're dumb people, but that they're not in the know about fundamentals and momentum and you know all the data that looks forward to recessions, et cetera, et cetera. So the hedge funds and institutions own downwards of the low 40 percentile, whereas the households own high 50s. Typically, it's reverse of that. In other words, when the smart money knows that the stock market's uh, fairly valued and it's worth buying, they buy it up. When it isn't, they sell. It seems that a lot of hedge fund managers are still going short the market or still expecting the market correction or the market crash to play out. If you look at a lot of uh, statistics that I read all the time, it's still going to be very hard to get into a situation where there's not a hard landing. It's very low odds that we're going to have a soft landing. They're trying to create it, but we're still looking dead in the face of ending this cycle with a recession. Now, let me go back to that yield curve graph. It's something that's very fascinating to me, and I learned about it, I don't know, about 15 years ago from uh, Scott Minard, who was at the time, uh, I think he was uh, Goldman Sachs uh, president or CIO, and then he uh, ended up running Guggenheim. Died this last year in, in his 50s, young guy, but super smart. I mean, this guy knew more about money and managed the biggest private equity firm on the planet, Guggenheim. And uh, you know, he, he talked about how important this yield curve is and how important trends of the past will repeat. Cycles always repeat. And I've been watching that ever since. And you know, he's right. Even before COVID happened, there was a time where the yield curve inverted. In other words, when short-term interest rates, the two-year treasury is actually pays more interest than the 10-year. When that happens, it always follows with the recession on average 11 months later, but somewhere between six and 24 months. 
Right now, we're in October. The stats that we're seeing right now is the 16th month. We're actually in the 17th month. We don't know what has really happened in the 17th month, but we have the data for the 16th month. That means we still have eight months to go before this historical trend gets to repeat and still stay true to itself. Now, before COVID, the market was going crazy. Everything was going just fine. But interestingly, there was liquidity issues. There was earnings issues. There was a lot of factors that actually played into a very short recession after, of course, they shut down the economy because of COVID. So some people are just saying, oh, well, that statistic got lucky. But even without the COVID, there was a trend that was uh, heading towards a maybe a short brief recession, maybe a soft landing type of recession, but a recession nonetheless. We actually had that just a couple years ago. Now, what precedes this last market sell-off and the recession? Now, by the way, the recession usually happens. Uh, we know we're in a recession when the sell-off is happening. But here's what happens just with liquidity issues tightening up, people just deciding not to overpay for stocks. I don't know if the rank-and-file regular public person will do that or not, but the institutions are already holding back. I think it was $147 billion that uh, I think something in that neighborhood. Uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago that uh, Warren Buffett has taken off the table, raising cash so that he can buy low when the market uh, finishes its cycle. He's a smart dude. I mean, we've got a lot of smart people that are taking money off the table, not buying in. It's your friends and neighbors at work and the people that think that they're uh, money managers that uh, manage their own 401k and that's it. And, you know, they went from 500 to 7,000 because they bought a bunch of NVIDIA and Microsoft stock when it was down. And now they think they're uh, gurus. But, and, you know, those are good stocks, uh, you know, long term, but they're, in my opinion, overvalued, especially NVIDIA. But we've got this going back to this cycle that's going to correct as we're out of the helicopter money. Banks still don't want to loan money. There's going to be this situation where there's kind of a bubble or a, a, a hole in um, this situation where we're going to have probably this sell-off, this uh, decline. Now, uh, if we look at consumer spending, that's down. We look at uh, retail sales are down. We've got a lot of things that say, hmm, things are actually not getting better for the middle class and the people that actually spend money, even though somehow the inflation didn't go up. But maybe that's because people aren't able to spend money. So the competition, I mean, when the economy gets bad, we're trying to cause a recession in order to get the inflation. Uh, inflation under control. So the inflation is coming in, you know, in control kind of indicates that we're having this recession coming on, that people aren't spending money, that companies aren't making quite as much profits. They're having to spend a little bit more for stuff too. And just because they didn't lower interest rates doesn't mean they're not still high. They're still much higher than they were a year ago and two years ago. So there's still that pressure. Now back to the yield curve. There's always a time right before the recession where the yield curve uninverts. Now the yield curve is inverted by about two percentage points right now. Well, it was about a month ago. Right now, it's only back to one. Every time before the recession or what triggers a recession is when the yield curve inverts. And in a month, the yield curve uninverts by at least 1% or it crosses over. So last month, we actually, in the last month, we have uninverted by 1%, which is usually the end of the cycle where the yield curve stays inverted. When it becomes uninverted, the recession always happens after the uninversion pace, not during the inversion. So, you know, we've been kind of waiting for this to happen to trigger that next move and see if we're going to actually have that decline that history has proven happens every time these situations occur. There are certain things that you can't change with money and cycles. They always do certain things. There are certain policies that continue to repeat. And part of it, I think, is they repeat because smart money follows them and realizes that there are reasons for corrections and crashes and resets and, you know, getting our stock prices back to reasonable or what we would consider reasonable normal valuations where they're not overpriced and the PE ratio is not 30. It's more like 15. So, you know, we could see a 50% correction from these current levels to get back to normal valuation. And right before a sell-off, there's another thing that always happens. Giddiness, 
mm-hmm. over optimism. Optimism is at an all-time high. That's usually right before the crash. When optimism is at an all-time low, that's when we want to be buying. So, you know, when we were talking earlier, just before the show, about, you know, how do you, how can you tell when there's a bottom? Right. Usually you tell when there's a bottom when everybody thinks that the sky is falling and, you know, Chicken Little's running around and everybody is scared to buy anything because it's so far down. Well, that's the time you want to buy. Just like right now, it's probably the time you want to sell if you're still in the market, if you want to take a, another chance or if you got back in the market and were lucky enough to time it or if you got suckered in with this AI hype and made some money you might was i think you should take the profits off the table because i think those hyped earnings will probably go back to where they were at more reasonable value where they were a year ago and they were at more reasonable value a year ago and i think a year ago value is still probably overvalued from where the bottom may end up and i'm not a pessimistic guy i'm just looking at cycles i'm looking at history i'm trying not to be emotional about it but i'm trying to also be smart enough to not risk my clients money who people who are retired and can't stand to lose money while the market's down. I mean, it's already been, the market's been on a roller coaster ride for the last two years. We really haven't made any money in the last two years in the market. In fact, you've locked in losses every time you spend money if you're taking them out of investments and living on that cash flow. If your dollar cost averaging, good for you. Long-term, you got 10, 20, if you're in your 30s or 40s, I mean, good for you. Keep on buying stock, buy it at whatever it is. Because in 20 years, it's not gonna matter what you're paying today for it. But uh, if you're spending that money and having to sell NVIDIA stock at you know 200 when it was down last year instead of 400, you know, now's a good time to sell and take it. But it doesn't always even out. When you're taking losses, that money, the money you had to spend last year at depressed rates is money that you don't get back on the up cycle. So eventually you're gonna run out of money because of volatility if you're using that money. So again, we come back to the point, we'd rather be safe than sorry. My job is to help people not lose money when it looks like the odds are in your favor of losing money. So if you have long-term and you don't need that money and you don't care about that money because you've, I, I talked to a guy at, at church uh, just this last week and um, you know, he goes, you know, he says, I just been buying the FANG stocks. I've done pretty well in the market. He says, but I've only got money in there. I can afford to lose. This guy got like 25,000 acres of, of farmland. I mean, the wow. guy's loaded. Yeah. I mean, he's got, I mean, huge money. <laughs> wow. And he's got, he's got more cash flow that he can handle just selling corn and soybeans if they, even if they don't grow it on half of his land. It's big, you know, family wealth from generations. But uh, yeah, he, he doesn't care. And you know what? I don't care. All the power to him. Good for him. He's been taking risk and he's riding it up and down and he's, you know, made millions and lost millions and he's just laughing about it because he doesn't care. But most people, if they have to live on that money, it should make your gut hurt to think if the market goes down 50% and it takes five years to get back to the high that we had last August, which is what will happen if this cycle plays out like the last two cycles, which were preceded by an immediate sell-off, a bear market rally or two, and a final sell-off. And then five years of people scared, wondering, you know, should we get back into the market? It took a while before things really got rolling again. But we've been there before. I've done this almost 35 years now. I've seen these market corrections. I'm not scared of them anymore. I used to be. It's like, oh my gosh, I never wanted to get in either. I was the one that stayed out for five years instead of jumping in when the market was at its low point, you know, in the beginning. But in these uh, more recent ones, it's like, okay, hey, this is a good time to buy. There will become a good time to buy probably before the election, I think. Because I think there's going to be a sell-off sometime between now and next spring. And we'll, everybody will be just crazy scared of the market. And that's when to buy. And it doesn't even matter who wins the election next year. I mean, if it's Trump, it's going to be a, you know, everybody's going to love the market because the market did well when he was there. And they're going to think it automatic is going to just fix it. And maybe it will just because of the positive outlook and attitude. If it's somebody else, even in a different party, guess what? After an election, the market always does well. I mean, that's history. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at next year to be the bad year. The year after that is when we could probably start looking at the uh, the uptick. So 
again, there's cycles that are happening. The fact that inflation, back to your original question, the fact that inflation only went up three point something year over year doesn't mean that it's not already up way too high for the average consumer to afford stuff they used to be able to afford. It's still hurting earnings. It's still hurting business. It's still hurting fundamentals. And we're probably going to have this cycle finish off. And it always finishes off when things are starting to look better. It's more of a counterintuitive type situation, but that's the way the cycles play out. So there we go. Jeff, this conversation illustrates why I love working with you here on the radio is because I can ask you a question and then I can sit back for 10 or 12 minutes, have a cup of coffee and just listen to you talk. I'm sorry. I probably have too much caffeine in the morning. I love that, that you're so passionate about this and that you understand it so thoroughly and so deeply. And I certainly hope that our listeners understand that you really do take this seriously. You're really looking under the hood to come up with reasons why the market is doing the things that it is doing. If you'd like to sit down and have this conversation with Jeff. It really is a joy. Call this number 520-780-9059 and request your premier retirement roadmap. Now, it's not going to cost you a dime. This roadmap will actually cover about five different areas, an income plan, investments to support that income plan, a tax plan, health care costs, and an estate plan. Once again, it's not going to cost you a dime. Totally complimentary. Sit down with Jeff, ask your questions, get the answers that you need to put you on a path towards a successful retirement. Once again, that number to call 520-780-9059 520-780-9059 you can also request your plan online at premret.com p-r-e-m-r-e-t.com jeff every week we talk about a case of the week an example of someone who's coming to your office with a particular situation and how you've helped them with that so let's talk about the case of the week this week Honestly, the people that come in to see me are typically people that are getting ready to retire. I think the optimal time is within five years of retirement or more, you know, maybe five to 10 years out. But uh, if you're already retired and you still need to uh, protect assets, you ought to, you know, look at your situation and make sure that your life's work is protected. Now, these people had already started about 10 years prior to retirement and they've only got a couple years left, but they've been very disappointed in some of the, the planning that they've done. It's been very, very heavily involved in annuities. And like you guys know, I'm, <laughs> I can't everybody knows I'm an annuity guy from the standpoint of creating safety with it. And, um, you know, some of these annuities were actually from some B plus rated companies and they were, I, I know, not the ones I would have necessarily chosen. And some of them actually were uh, some of them that I chose They're about a million dollars in annuities. They have uh, about uh, 2 million in real estate, but he says, you know, I'm going to retire. He says, I'm tired of it. He says, it's like I have two jobs. He says, I go to work and I come home and then I, you know, fix toilets, chase rent and, you know, uh, uh, turn houses over. And he says, I, I just want to really retire. And he says, I'm starting to sell them. So he'd start, he'd raised about 600,000 or so already. And uh, he says, I, I, you know, I would love to uh, do a 1031, but he says, then I'm still a manager. Well, we talked about DSTs and, you know, some of these, uh, you know, Delaware statutory trusts, some of these uh, ways to kind of play the real estate investment trust game on your own, kind of develop your own uh, real estate trust, get the tax break and a step up in basis, hopefully when you uh, die. But then we compared what if you put that cash flow? Now, this $2 million in real estate was only, believe it or not, was only generating about $80,000 in net profits per year, which you know is really about a 4% return on the, the value of the money. That's not really that good. So, you know, what we did is we flipped, uh, we flipped that and says, you know, if you just did, let's say you paid taxes and you put $150,000 of that $2 million in a LERP. Now, I know that's... Uh, you know, kind of heavy duty, but again, they have a million dollars in other stuff and they have about a half million. So there's about what, three and a half, four million dollars in, in total assets, not including their home. So, and, and again, you know, if you have a quarter of that and it's a million, just divide these things up into fours and this plan still works for you. If you have, you know, 10 times that, just add a zero. So again, these, these people are, um, 
you know, kind of what we call the mass affluent people that saved, that worked hard, saved money and spent less than they, <laughs> and lived on less than they made. Go figure. I mean, gee yeah. whiz, you know how that works if, if you do it for 30 or 40 years, but most <laughs> yeah. people nowadays don't want to do that. No. Anyway, so they did the 150, that gave them plenty of money to pay taxes and to take a couple of years um, to, to live on the balance um, and get their 80 to $100,000 a year. Now, over the next 10 years, they're going to put $150,000 a year in there. So what we did is we were taking some of the old annuities and either annuitizing them or using income riders, if there is one that will create the income that they need to live on to replace the income from the real estate. Some of the old annuities, we can actually convert the higher interest rate that insurance companies are making now is so much better that you can even take a six or eight or 10% penalty on a, an annuity you bought four or five years ago that hasn't made any money, get out with an 8% penalty. And some companies will give you 10 or 15% and, a, and about three times the upside potential, either with fixed guarantees instead of being around one or two, around five or six, and uh, caps on indexes being between seven and 10 rather than two or 3%, meaning that if the market's good, you can make seven to 10% on these new annuities, whereas the old annuities, man, you were lucky to make two or three. And we were just hoping to beat a CD back, you know, five years ago or so. But now that interest rates are higher, there are some upgrade opportunities. So we upgraded all the annuities and we said, okay, what about this real estate? It's probably going to take about three years, he figures, to let the leases expire and to sell the real estate and to uh, convert it into cash. What uh, he's going to do is live on some of that and put the uh, pay taxes as it goes, probably over the next three years. We're hoping we can do that before the Trump tax cuts go away. We don't know what's going to happen if a new president that isn't Trump gets in or uh, lets the taxes sunset. But we're hopeful we can get that done between this year and the next two and have about one and a half million dollars left to put into this LERP. That is going to generate more than $100,000 a year in tax-free income and leave over a million dollars in death benefit minimum the way we have it structured to their heirs. So they're going to live on $100,000 a year, more than the $80,000 they were making. It's tax-free. They don't have to collect rent and they're still going to uh, leave the lion's share of that uh, to their heirs. If they want to use the $80,000, and by the way, they're going to be on... Uh, you know, social security and uh, pensions and stuff like that. So they're going to have probably about 200,000 a year to live on, which is the gross of what they were making, but they were living on about half of that. So they're going to have about a $50,000 a year pay raise if they want to, you know, continue to make more than they were making on rents having a job. So this, this came out to be an extremely surprising eye-opener for this particular family that uh, you could actually make more and leave more. And by the way, if they if they didn't spend all that extra 50,000, they reinvested for the next 30 or 40 years, they'd have several million dollars in assets that they could give to their kids. It would be very feasible that uh, it would outperform. And because the LERP, life insurance retirement plans, grow tax-free like a Roth, and there's no limitations on them. And when you take money from them, you don't actually take money from them, you borrow from it. And that's how that's how we get the, the strength in that is a real estate trust or maybe even a, a DST or a, some sort of a 1031 exchange might be smarter just to pay the tax at 15 or 20% now, never pay tax again and still get, you know, cash flow somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, three or four times what you put into this. I mean, they're going to get, uh, you know, going to put in a, between a million, a million and a half total, and they're going to get, you know, over 3 million back and still leave a million to their heirs. So I think that's a pretty good key part of this plan. But the main thing is, is they thought they were on track. They had a guy that only did annuities, never talked about LERPs, didn't do any money management. You know, they kind of want to have the upside in the market, but they don't like the roller coaster ride. So, you know, we're eventually going to put some of the excess earnings, dollar cost average back into the market with money that they don't need to use and let that be the long-term play for the legacy. So that in a nutshell is the case of the week. 
Jeff, our listeners have questions about what you've just talked about. They're looking for a comprehensive planner who can talk about things such as the 1031 Exchange, Delaware Statutory Trust, that sort of thing. Again, I invite you to call Jeff, sit down, and have your complimentary conversation. That number is 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059 for your premier retirement review. Again, it's not going to cost you a dime, but it could change the course of your retirement. Once again, no cost, no obligation for this, 520-780-9059 or online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, time for a break. When we come back, we've got listener questions and more when our show continues here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan, and you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan and Jeff Shea. We're so glad you decided to join us here for Premier Retirement on 790 KNST. We're here for you every week for your fiscal fitness and your financial education. By the way, if you're just joining us or if you missed any part of the program, we're also a podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcast and search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and many of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth building journey and your path towards retirement. In this part of the program, Jeff, we always do listener questions. We'll kick it off this week with Dan listening to us in Tucson. And Dan says, I've heard two different answers to a Roth rule, and I need you to clarify. I've had a Roth IRA for 10 years. So from an account perspective, I meet the Roth five-year rule to be able to take out distributions tax-free. Well, today I made a Roth conversion from a traditional IRA into my 10-year-old Roth IRA. Does the clock begin today on this amount of money deposited and I need to track each Roth conversion? Or do the internet pundits presume that we're opening a brand new Roth when we do the conversion and fail to tell us their underlying presumptions? Well, I've got good news for you. It's a lot easier than that. If you've had a Roth, any Roth, and it's been open five years, you don't even have to move your money to a Roth to allow that initial five-year rule to take place. You could actually convert to a different IRA, and you don't have to wait on a per-account basis. I mean, the fact that you put it into something that was 10 years old, that's easy. You can convert as much as you want. You just have to wait five years before you start taking profits or earnings out of the Roth. You can actually take money out of the Roth as long as you take principal only. So you can take up to the principal because you've already paid taxes on that, but you have to wait five years in order to make any growth on that account tax-free. So you have to have a five-year seasoning to make all the growth on whatever you put into it tax-free. That's a simple nuts and bolts of it. I don't know what pundits on the internet you've been talking to or reading about, but uh, it's a real simple rule. Once you get a Roth, you can even start a $7,000 Roth five years later convert a million dollars from your 401k into an IRA, pay the $300,000 in taxes or $400,000 in taxes and call it good. I wouldn't do that, by the way, but I mean, you could do that and you can start taking money and earnings out of that new Roth uh, right away because it was already established five years earlier. Dan, we appreciate you listening to us. Thank you so much for that question. And of course, we will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. Good question, Dan. Let's move on to Tony now in Oro Valley as a question about a health savings account. Tony says, I'm 60 years of age, and I want to know whether it makes sense to start a health savings account at my age. You know, um, health savings accounts, I, I mean, I, 
I like them for some reasons. I don't think you get a big enough tax deduction to make them probably worth it. You're still kind of capped out like IRA rules and they turn into much more of an IRA type of an account, although you don't have RMDs with it. I mean, if you've got the extra cash flow, sure, why not? You can pay some of your deductibles on long-term care and some of your Medicare premiums and things like that with it. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think to stretch yourself financially to do it, it may not help you as much as you need to, to be helped. The other thing is, is many people find that they're in a higher tax bracket, you know, in retirement than when they actually getting the deduction for the money that they put away. So you kind of have to look at the whole picture where you're at now, you know, whether the, you know, the fact that you can, uh, you know, put money away in a, you know, in a HSA for a few years, you know, if you never touched that money in 30 years, it might be worth a significant chunk that you could use for your long-term care stay. If you had to go into a nursing home to recover for a few months from a knee replacement or something like that. In my opinion, those HSA dollars shouldn't be put in there just to get the deduction and then use it to pay medical expenses this year. I think the most power that you get out of those is still paying your bills, trying to do what you can to work your tax situation out where you get to write off all your health expenses by taking advantage of writing off more than your standard deduction. You could do that through other tax strategies. I've talked about those before, like donor advice funds for charities. And it's okay to have a mortgage to write off and add up health care. And you see if you can actually get past that standard deduction level and actually take advantage of those medical deductions for paying those bills. But in my opinion, compound interest is a lot more powerful than just getting a tax deduction so you can spend it on healthcare costs this year. If you're under that standard deduction amount and you can't itemize, yeah, I see how it's you know a way to kind of shelter some money and you know pay some of your bills as you go, but that's only gonna be a few years, like you said, because of your age and the fact that you have limited time that you can uh, continue to add. So you know, if you had the cash flow and you can do it, I'd stuff it full and just let that thing ride until you need a big expense uh, in you know, healthcare regard uh, down the road. Tony, thank you so much for listening to us there in Oro Valley. And of course, uh, Shelly's out there putting your book in its envelope. That is Retirement, The Road Ahead. And again, if you've got questions of Jeff, 520-780-9059, he'd be happy to sit down with you individually and talk about whatever's on your mind. Next question is John in Savano, Jeff. And John says, I'm looking for information on real estate syndications as an investor. I have a cousin who's been doing these, and he has a project that's soliciting limited partners to contribute money to get a deal done on an apartment complex. Do you have any experience in this area or advice you can give me? You know, I I actually loan money on real estate. Personally, not so much in that regard, but I do take notes on specific properties. I wouldn't do one on a whole apartment complex, but I guess as a limited partner, if you trust the general partner to not take big salaries and as a limited partner, you don't get any say-so on how it's managed. So if you trust the general partner, like if the general partner is your wife or your brother or your son who's a CPA, like I do a lot of investing through my son who's a CPA that manages some real estate for some big syndicated type deals that are uh, acquiring and consuming the residential real estate market like crazy. But, you know, I don't think that's a bad investment as long as you know who's running it and they're not just going to suck all the profits out and say, oh, sorry, here's your money back or here's a piece of your money back. Sorry, it didn't work out you know, like we planned, I think having uh, something that, you know, guarantees you profit share or that general partners, you know, don't have conversion fees or perks and things like that for just doing their job, that they have skin in the game and that they profit share and maybe get an outside manager to do actually the managing. And maybe they get a, a small bonus for putting a thing together. But 
far too often real estate investment trusts, REITs, and other syndicated type investments that are, you know, securities usually only suitable for accredited investors and uh, other, uh, you know, high net worth people, because it is a situation where there's no guarantees. You could lose. Your money's not liquid. It's only as liquid as uh, when they sell the property or if somebody can buy your note. And typically everybody will want to buy your note at a huge discount if you ever needed to get out. But nobody wants to pay full market value for it unless this place either sells off or goes public. And then maybe you'll get close to your money back plus the interest. That's my history of that kind of investment in a big group. Now, again, if it's just a close knit uh, group of friends and family that want to put it together and it's, you know, a reasonably uh, easy to manage and, you know, well-kept apartment complex in a good area that looks like it has some longevity and won't depreciate. You know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea at all. Just be careful going in and know your limitations and realize that it's not as liquid as short-term bonds or CDs or stock market stuff, even though stock market is also risky, but at least it's liquid and you can move it in and out of the market depending on, you know, how you feel about things at any given time. John, again, we thank you for sending in that question. And of course, we will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Next question, Jeff comes from Greg, who's listening to us off in Casa Grande. Greg says, I'm 63 years old and have $60,000 left to pay off the house and about the same amount available to us for a Roth conversion and still stay within our current tax bracket. Which do you think is the smarter move? You mean paying off the house or going into a Roth and paying the taxes on it? You know, I'm a fan of mortgages if you're not paying 7 or 8% on them. If you're paying 2 or 3%, like so many people got refinanced uh, into really low interest rate mortgages, you just can't beat it. I mean, you could take that money and invest it in anything, short-term bonds, pay the taxes now and do your thing with the Roth conversion, make 5% on your money tax-free and still have more than enough to pay the mortgage interest on your house and pay it over time, you'll actually come out thousands of dollars ahead that way. I think, you know, the the old school of thought or old train of thought was, you know, old school says, pay off your house, it's the American dream, a paid off house is great. Well, most of that came around when interest rates were eight and 10% and you can only make five or six on a CD. Well, now you make five or six on a CD, but you pay 8% on a loan. So that old adage is going to come back for people that are buying houses now. Yeah, pay it off. But if you got a mortgage at two or three and you can get five on a CD or short-term bond, then it'll be silly to pay it off now. I mean, the worst case is, is you could, you're going to have to pay tax on that money anyway if, if you pay off your house. So you can either convert it to a Roth, pay taxes at today's tax rates. They're going to go up in three years. So even though you're at a current tax rate now, we know that exact tax rate is going up in three years unless, you know, Trump gets put back in and launches the uh, the tax cut program. It sunsets in 2026, actually sunsets the end of 2025. So 2026, we're going to have to pay the old rates again. So your tax rates are going to go up. I think paying taxes now while they're cheap is smarter than paying them later when you know they're going to be more money because the rate you pay out, not when you pay, is really the most important thing. So I think the Roth conversion is uh, probably the one I would lean to, not knowing your total situation, but I don't think the cash flow difference, you know, paying your house, if you've already been doing that, is uh, bothering you enough not to continue to, you know, just let the growth on the uh, the Roth pay for that cash flow. And by the way, I wouldn't touch the Roth money to pay off your house, or I just keep paying it with the cash flow that you've been used to paying it with. So that way it's going to end up being paid off and that Roth will have a lot more time to grow and compound those uh, rates of return over years rather than use and cannibalize that tax-free growth and spend it. Greg, we appreciate you listening to us in Casa Grande. And of course, yes, you're going to get Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Jeff, we've got time for another question here. This is one that really applies to me personally, but we do get it here in the office. We've got a grandson who is 18 months old, and we would like to set up some sort of a college savings plan for that grandson. So the question is, should we be sending money to the parents, our son and daughter-in-law to set that up? Or is there another way as grandparents that we can fund a college savings account for this young man? 
Well, depending on your health and your age, I didn't get your health or I didn't get the health of the age of the question. Do you have that? Well, this is, this is me. You're asking me. you're asking my health and my age, I'm assuming, right? Oh, this is yours. Yours is your question. Yeah, this is my question. But we get it here. Yeah, we get it here in the office once in a while. I had a question I could actually ask you. Grandson. Oh, I gotcha. Grandson is 18 months. We'd like to set up a college savings plan for him. So should we be sending money to our son and daughter-in-law to do that? Should we do it? And how should we go about doing it? Well, I am not a fan of 529 plans. I just haven't seen any that have performed very well. You get some sort of a tax break, supposedly. But here's what I like. I like the double tax benefit of LERPs for college education. Here's why I like it. If you put away, let's, I don't know what you want to put away. Let's just say 10000 a year you right. know, for, you know, just to, to make sure that this grandson of yours that you love like crazy is going to get to college and, you know, have enough leftover maybe to get a house. Right. And maybe uh, it could be worth a couple hundred thousand dollars by the time he gets ready to go. If you put that money into a LERP, now you pay taxes on it, but it's in a tax-free environment. You no longer have to pay taxes on it. On a 529, if your grandson gets old enough, doesn't end up going to college, you have to move that money or you have to take it out and pay taxes as if it was just a deferred account. So you end up not getting any tax-free growth on it. If you do a LERP and you get hit by a truck, it funds at 250 or 500,000 or however much death benefit you want to buy on the LERP, life insurance retirement plan. When your grandson goes to college, you can actually borrow from your death benefit tax-free. You can write a check to the institution and get a write-off and you can uh, buy things and you could write off some of those expenses. Whereas, you know, once you put it in the 529, it's kind of restricted as what you can use uh, anyway. Housing, books, and tuition really is about the only things you can uh, do direct. But, you know, there might be some ways that you can get some additional tax benefits or have that tax-free growth, use the money without it actually affecting you tax-wise. And then if he doesn't go to college, you can either decide if he does become responsible through some other way. You don't only become responsible going to college, but, you know, if let's say you get set up and you say, well, gee, we've got that money we set aside for him. Let's uh, put a down payment on a house. Houses might be $800,000 by the time he gets an entry-level house and a couple hundred thousand dollars down payment might be just what he needs. And guess what? You can borrow it from your death benefit. And when you die, the balance could go to the grandson or to whoever you want to, to your trust, to your other kids and his parents, other siblings of his or whatever. So I like LERPs. I like the flexibility. I like the fact you get tax breaks no matter what. You don't have to cash in if they decide not to go to college. You have a predictable rate of return, which in reality, in my history and looking at 529 plans, beats every 529 plan I've seen. I just haven't seen any of them that have averaged more than maybe 5% or if that. Most of them are kind of flat. I don't know why they sell them or make such a big deal about them. They must get a bonus for selling them or something. I don't know. But I, I'm just not a favor of that. I am a favor of helping your kids out, but I like the multi-function mm-hmm. of the LERP plan. Not only, And then what if your uh, grandson gets a scholarship, doesn't need your money, gets right. a full-ride scholarship because they're a, a, you know an awesome uh, receiver in football. Yeah. Well, then you guess what? You can use it for your own retirement fund. Or you can use it for your own long-term care plan. It can still be yours if you want it to be. Yeah, well, let's hope he gets a scholarship to some place. He's got an uncle who's in professional golf and another uncle who's in professional basketball, guys. So nevertheless, uh, we wish him well. But Jeff, I thank you for the answer to that. If you don't mind, I will take your book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. You've already <laughs> it, got that book. I've already got the book, but I could <laughs> always use another one. I'm going to give it to the I'm sure going to, to give it to the kids. If you've got questions for Jeff here, you can get it to us by going to premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Send it to us, and if we use it on the air, of course, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. 
And of course, if you've got questions about Jeff, you don't want them answered on the air, but you want to sit down with Jeff, have that complimentary consultation about your retirement roadmap. Again, that number to call 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059. You could also request your plan online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, for the remaining part of the program here, in the beginning of the program, you touched on it a little bit, and that was about how the presidential race could affect the economy. And I want to expand on that a little bit. If Donald Trump is the nominee, I have heard some people say there's going to be a rip-your-face-off rally if he's just the nominee because the market does not like uncertainty. What's your opinion on that? Well, I don't think getting to be the nominee means he's going to win. I mean, we already know, and there's, I know you call it a conspiracy theory or not, but statistically, there's so many anomalies and stats that can't happen and don't happen that happened with the election that it had to be rigged and there was some shenanigans being played. So if that party that opposes uh, Donald Trump is that organized again, it may not happen that he gets in place. But if the election happens, and he's reelected. Everybody remembers that things were better when Donald Trump was in. So I, I do believe that be a rip your face off rally. That'll be when consumer confidence comes back after what I suspect will happen sometime early next year is there will be a market sell off or some sort of a, a reset period. It might just be, you know, flat market while we wait and get earnings up to a place where stocks become at a more uh, reasonable value. That would be considered a soft landing. The hard landing would be a massive sell-off because everybody's scared. They, you know, chicken little sky is falling type market crash. And then when there's that hope that Trump might win or then he does, then it's going to be all hell's going to break loose. But the market's going to be at a very depressed price point at that point if that scenario occurs. So it's it stand a reason to, uh, you know, have a, a big bounce. I don't think it'll get five years worth of, you know, or 50% uh, rate of return on the entire S&P 500 because a lot of companies, a lot of economy has to uh, strengthen before the fundamentals will support that. However, some of those big stocks will probably drive those indexes. You could probably jump in index funds or indexed annuities or LERPs that play the indexes and make, you know, double digit returns in a safe place while the market gets better and they anticipate all the changes that a businessman related person like Trump is would make better policies that would support a more robust economy and the pocketbook of most Americans. So I do think that that would happen, but here's the deal. In reality, after any election, no matter who wins, and typically the incumbent wins, so we've got really the needle sways towards uh, the Democratic Party, if not uh, Biden, probably whoever stands in. I don't think it's gonna be Kamala Harris. I don't think they could uh, stand to have her out front, even though some people think she's doing a wonderful job. I don't know what job she's doing, but it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like they're just puppets on a puppeteer string. So whatever the puppeteer says that happens, they'll uh, uh, possibly make it happen. Once the election's behind us, typically there's a year to see what happens, what policies change, don't change, or might be instituted that, you know, could make a difference in markets, economies, and in people's pocketbooks. So while they're waiting and while we wait to see almost always right after the election is a good year to be in the market. I don't know if there is a time when the year after an election was negative, flat maybe, or maybe just slightly negative, but nothing like a big downturn in an election year or the year following an election. In an election year, there's typically a a bias downward up until the election or kind of a flat bias. It's bias or down, it's not usually up prior to the election. Everybody wants to kind of see what happens. There's kind of people kind of in kind of a pause state, just like there was a few years ago. But then, you know, once it happened, guess what? Even with Biden shutting down pipelines and making policies that we knew were economically unsound, the market rallied pretty good for the 
first year in office. And then it tanked 2022. 2021 was a good year for the market. 2022 was a bad year. 2023, good first and not so good now. And we'll see if it ends with the Santa Claus rally like sometimes it does because, you know, the brokerage firms like to do some window dressing. They've got a lot of cash sitting on the sideline. Shoot, they've sold so much stock to the, the public sector that they've got a lot of cash that they could actually, you know, buy the market up and maybe uh, create some hype and generate uh, a lot of uh, people willing to sell stock or, you know, or buy stock at a higher and higher value that, you know, after the first of the year, that might be when uh, when things get a little bit sticky and, uh, you know, we see that uh, that sell off. So, you know, I don't know that I want to time the market and say, OK, the next two months will probably be good. Let's jump in the market, but let's just jump out by January. There's still enough downside pressure and still enough things that would make me want to just stay pat and just kind of wait for this thing to bottom out. Meantime, we're making an annualized 5% on our money. And if I'm wrong, all of our indexed products like LERPs and indexed annuities are going to make money because the market's going to do well if it ends up doing well. So we're in a no-lose situation right now. I don't want to put us in a possible to-lose situation because I think this knee-jerk reaction of, oh my gosh, the Fed didn't raise interest rates. They're going to stay at five and a quarter. Or, uh, oh my gosh, uh, inflation's still at 3%, but there's still inflation on top of what has already happened, which is bad. And there's still, you know, 97% of the companies out there are still lacking earnings, not increasing earnings. There's a few here and there that are standouts. And if you can stock pick and be lucky, you can get some standouts. You know, but again, it's a speculative business. And if you can't afford to lose that money, it wouldn't be, you know, a place where I'd, I'd play right now. But yeah, we could see a Santa Claus rally. We could see a flat market. And then we're probably going to see a good market after the election. Really good if Trump gets in, or even, I think maybe even a Republican that talks and sounds like Trump that has some sort of a business background and makes the same type of promises and commitments, but maybe not quite the rip your face off one like you talked about. Biden gets back in, everybody knows that's probably not going to necessarily be a great policymaker for markets and economies, but there might be some stimulus, quantitative easing kicking back in. Maybe they'll try to soften the blow to the recession that might be happening in order to make the make them look like they saved the day and, you know, to win the election, blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, I think there's some ha- things that could happen that could make them look like a hero and could make the market go up, let's say, around the election time in the following year, regardless of who wins. We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning Wealth Management here in Tucson and Mesa. Once again, the number for questions, 520-780-9059. Jeff, of course, in the first part of the program, we talked about inflation cooling to 3.2% in October. Do you think that this is an indicator that we're getting inflation under control and that there will not be a Fed rate hike in the month of December? I know that we don't know the unequivocal answer to this, but what's your opinion? Well, you know, the rubber band stretched about as far as it can go with inflation. I mean, pretty soon people can't afford anything. So, I mean, there's going to be a top and, and it's going to slow down. It's like a big curve. It's like a mountain. You know, we climbed the steep part of the mountain and now the, we're kind of getting to the top where it's leveling out. So doesn't mean we're not still having inflation. We still, 3% is still, you know, higher than we want. And considering that it's on top of huge inflation that happened the last couple of years, doesn't mean we're out of the woods. The other thing is, is the Fed didn't lower interest rates. They kept them high. They kept them at five and a quarter on the Fed funds rate. So we've got short-term bonds paying five and a half. We've got long-term bonds, you know, about four and a half to five. They're going up a little bit, but the inversion curve, it looks like the curves, the yield curve is starting to invert between the two and the 10 year, because most people expect there to be some sort of a recession where the Fed's going to have to back off. When the Fed backs off, that's when, you know, we should actually buy because it'll probably be after a sell-off and they'll have to reverse that trend of raising interest rates. So I think just holding a pat, it might not be really bad news that they didn't raise interest rates again, but it's not good news. The good news would be that they lowered them to four and a half or they had a half a point decrease in interest uh, over the next three quarters in uh, 2024. So 
I think, you know, they don't want to rock the boat too bad. I think going into the end of the year, they'd like to, you know, go into an election year saying, hey, look, you know, we fixed the economy last year. They didn't do anything. Seven companies did. And actually, I guess they did. Biden's policies uh, do really support the massive, big, mega cap companies, the magnificence of Amazons and Microsofts and Apples and those guys. I mean, they do kind of give them some, you know, leeway to, you know, kind of flirt around with that monopolistic uh, thing that we tried to get rid of years and years ago. But they've got markets cornered and they're able to make money where a lot of these other companies can't. So, you know, I think there's going to be some uh, maybe some window dressing to help the rest of the market grow so they can kind of take some credit for that. But it'll probably be after things get worse before they'll get better. And I think uh, it won't be till next year till we see some interest rate drops. But again, the fact that inflation only went up 3.2% does mean that we're getting it under control. But the only way we get inflation in, under control is create a recession. If you think about it, that's what they've been trying to do. They've been trying to raise interest rates to where companies have to lay off people. There has to be an unemployment spike. There has to be recession in order for the reset to actually be meaningful. Unfortunately, that's how all these cycles end. They always have. They always will. We're going to have several cycles where we're going to go through recessions. You can't avoid recessions. They happen. It's a cycle. It's an economic cycle. Every cycle repeats. I've been in this business long enough, and I've been told so many times, oh, this is different. Oh, this is different. But guess what? It ends up the same every time. And so I'm just not taking the bait. Most people who have money now didn't have money 10 and 20 years ago or when the market crashed in 2000 or 2008. Some people did, but most of the people getting ready to retire now have made most of that in the last 10 years. Their kids grew up, they're out of the house now, they can save money, they put it all in the market and they triple or quadruple all their money, they get matches from their companies and now they're rich and they've made everything in the stock market and they're told to hang on there and that we're not gonna have a recession, it's gonna be a soft landing because this is different this time and so nobody's worried until there's a sell-off and then when people start getting worried and then they realize, uh-oh, maybe the market does take five years to get back to even. Maybe it does take a couple years to get back to even. Maybe I can't afford to retire this year because the market's down. You know, maybe I should have listened to Jeff who's been talking about that on the radio for a couple years, several years, but mostly just in the last uh, year or two, you know, spreading the word of caution. Let's err on the side of caution, not err on the side of, oops, wish I woulda, coulda, shoulda. Jeff, our listeners have questions about our conversations today. Again, that telephone number, 520-780-9059. Unfortunately, we're out of time for this week. Jeff, I want to thank you for your time. But of course, certainly I want to thank the fine people here of the greater Tucson area for joining us. For Jeff Fogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.